When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Decibel Geek Podcast with Aaron Camaro and Chris Sinzak. All right, it's finally back. Yes, it is. Albums Unleashed right here on the Decibel Geek Podcast. My name is Aaron Camaro. Joined as always by an awesome friend, kick-ass co-host, Chris Sinzak. What's going on, brother? Not much. Excited to uh, release this one this week. This is uh, one we've been looking forward to for a very long time, and I I know you guys are going to really enjoy it. Yeah, this is an album that we've talked about a bunch of times over the years. It's very revered around here. Talking about the debut from Blue Murder. And we always said, man, I'd sure love to do an album's Unleashed on that. I don't know how many times we've said it about this album. Sure love to do it, sure love to do it. Well, today, we're doing it. Not only are we doing album's Unleashed on the debut album, we're doing it with the man. Yes, the man behind the kit and the man that had a big part in putting together this band and putting together this album, the one and only Carmine Apiece. How cool is that? Yeah, it's uh, and it's good timing because, uh, as a lot of you know, we're now on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Well, also Carmine and his brother Vinny have a show called Hanging and Banging that just got added to the Pantheon Podcast Network. So uh, I want to thank Gwen, their representative, for uh, getting this set up for us. And very excited to talk to Carmine about this. But, yeah, go to uh, PantheonPodcast.com, and then you click on the Hanging and Banging link, and you can check out their show. It's a really great show. And I also want to promote Carmine's book that came out a few years back called Stick It that's got a lot of great stories, including a number of the stories you're going to hear today in that book. And, uh, yeah, check it out. And uh, there might be some more announcements about Carmine in the future. I'll just leave it at that. Oh, nice. Teaser alert. Hey, listen, when we talk to Carmine today, we're definitely going to be talking all about Blue Murder. But Carmine's got such cool stories, man. We just let him go on tangents. We said, man, let him talk about whatever he wants. And there is some pretty cool stuff that he reveals in this conversation that we have. So 
it's going to be badass. You guys are going to love it a lot. Yeah, it, it, well, it, it could almost be called Band Unleashed because you do get, it's almost the full story start to finish of how of Blue Murder's career. So there is some talk about the second album on there that I know you guys are going to be interested in. There's a lot of talk about touring this album and, and inner band politics and everything. So, And then there's some amazing stories about you know his connection with John Bonham. There, there's a lot in here, but uh, there's plenty of talk about the first record. Yeah, you're going to love it all. All of it. You know what we love? Ooh, we love taking care of the business. Let's do it right now. We want your reviews. We want them on Podchaser. We want Apple reviews. We want Facebook recommendations. We love them. You can give them to us. We've actually got a couple of really good ones here today. I want to share these with you before we get to today's festivities. This first one, it is a Apple podcast review. comes to us from FoxDN1. From right here in the good old United States. And look at there. Five stars. Gotta love that. It's entitled, Read My Review and Become a Fan. Do you like Kiss? Do you like rock music? Do you like to be entertained? Do you like to be enlightened? Are you anti-cancer and or anti-war? If you said yes or maybe to any of these questions, you will absolutely love the Decibel Geek Podcast. Aaron and Chris are great hosts with an encyclopedic knowledge of useful and useless rock and roll facts. Hit that subscribe button and enjoy the weekly and very therapeutic discussions about rock music. Badass right there. That's a great review. Comes to us from right here in the U.S. It's a uh, Apple Podcast review. Very cool. Yeah, that's from a uh, regular retweeter, Doug Fox, who uh, he retweets oh, yeah. us pretty much every week. And uh, lots of big words in there, like gymnasium. Good job. <laughs> I knew you couldn't let that one go. Of course not. Encyclopedic. Uh-huh. I had, a, had trouble reading that almost. You nailed it, though. Uh-huh. Not bad. All right. Here's something else that's not bad. As a matter of fact, it's really, really good. This one's a Pod Chaser review. Comes to us from Jeff Tomasini. And he reviewed the Decibel Geek podcast and gave it five pink stars. That's how they do it on Podchaser. His review goes like this. Aaron and Chris kick ass. They need some love. Get it here and leave them a five-star review. Just listening to Fresh Blood episode 443 and just downloaded everything from Howling Giant. Great band. Nice. Keep up the great work, guys, and all the killer content. Too bad I can only give five stars. Thank you, Jeff. That's awesome. I love to hear that when we're doing something like Fresh Blood on the show and people hear it and go, here's a new band. I've never heard them before. Chris and Aaron played them for me. They're badass. Now I want to get out and support this band. That is what Fresh Blood's all about. That's what the Decibel Geek podcast is all about. Keeping rock and roll, rocking and rolling. Yeah, it's uh, it's great to get these reviews. Please keep them coming. It, it helps us in the rankings. And actually, you know, Aaron, you uh, discovered that we've moved up in the rankings. Yeah, because anytime anybody asks me about it, I pull out my phone and I look at the uh, the Apple all-time music history rankings, you know, because we are top 10. And today somebody asked me about it. I said, well, you know, last time we were at number nine. Let me check, see where we're at now. And I looked. We've crept up to number nine. Here we come, Dolly Parton. <laughs> we're coming for you. That's awesome. <laughs> I know, but it's thanks to you guys that are leaving us the reviews and the people that download this show. Without you, we'd only have 50 listeners. 
but that's okay because we'd still do what we do anyway. So it's just better that we have more friends, more people getting involved, and hopefully this summer, more people coming to party with us at Rockin' Pod. Oh, yeah, that is going on this summer, isn't it? You got anything? There's a lot going on. I mean, like, with two out of the three different VIP levels have already sold out. And uh, I think we're down to nice. about between six and ten hotel rooms left in our block to sell, and then that's done. Nice. And uh, more uh, more guest announcements coming this week. It's uh, There's a lot of cool stuff going on behind the scenes. Oh, I love it. If you guys want to learn more about Rockin' Pod, it's coming up this summer, August 6th through the 8th, right here in Nashville, Tennessee, at the Hotel Hilton out there by the airport. Get all your information, find out all the guests, all the podcasts that are coming, all the cool festivities that envelop that whole weekend here in Nashville. We turn Country Music USA into Rock City USA right here in Tennessee. So come join us this summer. Get all your information at rockandpod.com. I can wait no longer. Are you ready to get into this? Well, after we do the Geeks of the Week. Oh, shit. I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> so, but we got to show the love to the people that shared on Facebook and retweeted on Twitter last week's Beat the Geek episode. Uh, I think we, we handled ourselves relatively well against some very challenging opponents in that episode, but it was, yeah, it was a lot of fun. pretty good. No losses, yeah. couple of ties, but no losses. Yeah, and a lot of people coming out of the woodwork going, well, I want to come on. So, yeah, we'll be doing another one of those soon, Yeah, I'm I sure. saw that uh, our good friend Ray Coon from Dawn of the Rising laid down the challenge to you. Yeah, I'll, hey, I'll take on anybody. No problem. All right. All right, Geeks of the Week this week are Adam Cox, John Phillips, Jay Shablewski, Pantheon Podcast, Shay Hargett, Chris Fretwell, Mike Parnell, Mark Alden-Taylor, Mark and Jerry BS Sessions, Jeffrey Mendenhall, Keith Rockford, Wayne Cross, David Glenn, The Bakery Podcast, Aaron Baker, J.J. McElhenney, In Obscuria Podcast, Ernesto Aguiar, Vet Halen, Hakon Bergstad, Anxiety Descending, Eladio, Doug Fox, Kevin's on Fire. I love that name. Kevin's on Fire. <laughs> Sean Cullen. And as always, The, the Mooger Fooger. Fooger. That's right. Those are our people, our good friends. You want to become a Geek of the Week? All you got to do is take this week's episode right here on the Facebook or even over on Twitter. And when the official episode gets released, the announcement on either one of those platforms, you just share it or retweet it from right at that original post, and you will be counted and included as next week's Honorary Geeks of the Week. All right. One more thing. Friday Night Live. We're going to be hanging out with Rock and Ron Runyon. Maybe do some more. Uh, maybe do some more. Beat the geek. See what I got time to throw together. Very cool. Always fun to do uh, Friday Night Live with Rock and Ron. All right, let's do it. I can't wait no longer. Now for sure, we stretched it out as long as we can. We promised it. Here it is. The one and only Carmine of Peace breaking it down with us. It's Albums Unleashed. Blue Murder. So we do these Albums Unleashed things once in a while where we have the pleasure of sitting down and speaking with somebody who had a hand in one of our favorite albums. And so Chris and I will talk about, you know, we both love this album. We want to talk about this one. We've done so many so far, but it's been a minute since we've done one. And if we're going to come back, we want to come back and do it in a big way. This is an album we've talked about many, many times on the show over the years, and it's... It's one of those albums that if you know it, you love it. But a lot of people don't know about it because it was everything there's a strange story that goes along with this album. We're gonna find out all about it today. Chris, I know you're excited to talk about it. The album well, I'm what's talking the strange, about is, what's the strange story? 
Well, just how it how it should have been huge. Like when oh. I listened to that first Blue Murder album, I listened to that and I think this album is amazing. Like there's not a bad track on it. Every single song is really really good. And I think this band should have been massive. So I got to imagine there's some strange circumstances that go into the fact that such an amazing album isn't as revered by more people as it is by us and people that listen to shows like ours. Well, it's become very, very legendary, I have to yeah. say. So I've talked to a lot of people and on the road. A lot of people bring that album up to sign it and they say, man, I love this album, you know, and... Uh, back in those days, I would have bet my house that it was going to be a five million seller. Yeah, mm-hmm. I bet. It's a good thing I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but uh, that's how sure I was because you had John Kalodner, the guy from Geffen that signed us. You had me, Tony, and John, which were great talents. I mean, I went after this band when I heard about that they were getting together because when I heard that, yeah, you know, I, I, I've been following John since he was in White Snake, you know, and the Slider In record and the and the White Snake '87 record. Mm-hmm. And his playing and the songwriting was fantastic, you know. And then I heard about and I love Tony Franklin when I heard him on the Firm. Yeah. He's the only rock fretless bass player. I said, "Wow, this guy is tremendous," you know. Mm-hmm. So when I heard they were doing a band, then I heard it was Cozy Powell playing and Ray Gillum singing. I said, wow, what a band that would be. I wish I was, you know, I wish I was Cozy Pal right now because I really wanted to play with those guys, mm-hmm. you know. And then I heard Cozy was out and Ray was out. I said, whoa. And then I heard that John was ch- looking for drummers, you know. So I knew they were in England and I was in L.A. So I said, well, how, how am I going to find out how to get a hold of these guys, you know. So my brother Vinny was playing with Dio in London, four nights at Hammersmith Odeon. I said, well, if anybody knows where to get a hold of, you know, John Sykes' manager or whatever in England, it will be at these shows because, you know, it's the same genre of music. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I went there and I had a good time with Dio. I jammed with Dio and, and at the Odeon and everything. And I ran into Chris Welch. Do you know who Chris Welch is? I Chris, can't say Chris I Welsh was a great writer for Melody Maker. Oh, okay. And he was a big writer for Melody Maker for many, many years. I mean, he wrote all about BBA. He wrote about Vanilla Fudge. He wrote about Cactus. Even Rod Stewart when I was with Rod. And probably Ozzy, you know. Yeah, right. And uh, so I ran into him and I told him, I said, look, I'm trying to find out how to get a hold of John Sykes for this Blue Murder project. Do you have any numbers? So he said, oh, yeah, I have his his stepdad is his manager. I have his number. I said, great. So I called him up and, and I said, uh, and those were no days of cell phones. Right. right. You know, I called him on a landline yeah. and I told him I was there and I would love to come check it out. And they said, Oh, great. Come down. So I drove two hours from London to Blackpool, England. And, uh, they gave me an address of a hotel that they booked a room for me. And, Tony Franklin met me at the hotel. I got there at two in the morning. And Tony was, at that time, he was a heavy drinker. So he met me at the hotel at two in the morning. And we broke into the bar <laughs> of the hotel and, and had a bit of a drink. I, would, I don't really drink, so I just sociably you know, had a, a brandy and coke with him, you know. And 
then the next day we got up and smoked a little hash. Nice. <laughs> and we, John had his John's stepdad had a studio in his house where John grew up in. Mm-hmm. And in that studio was a set of Koshi Pal's drums. Oh, wow. So and we'd gone to a music store first and we went there and we started playing, you know, just jamming. And after an hour or so, Sykes came up to me and said, man, you know, we play with Cozy and Ainsley and all these great drummers, but you got so many drum fills. Yeah. You know, not like these other guys, you know, they have three or four drum fills. So you just got so many. We love you playing, you, you know, so if you want to do this, you're in. Nice. Wise. I said, great. I didn't know what any deals were or anything, you know, so I had a manager at the time. And we put a deal together with his manager, who was, who was uh, Ron, this guy Ron, his stepdad. Yeah. And so the management team was Ron, some lawyer, and a guy that used to work for Capitol Records. That's supposed, and none of them really had management experience. Right. So I think that's where the problem had started. Okay. Mm. So we were going to be me, John, Tony. And this guy, Tony Martin from Black Sabbath. Yeah, yeah. awesome right? singer. That was going to be Blue Murder. So so John was staying with his girlfriend at the time in in uh, California near me in LA. I lived in Northridge and he lived with his girlfriend somewhere down the 405. And, uh, and so we were getting ready to leave. We had my roadie take well the drums I was going to take we shipped them up to Little Mountain where we were going to record with Bob Rock mm-hmm. we shipped them all up there and and me and John were leaving from LA and yeah Tony and the keyboard player Nick Green who passed away now mm-hmm. unfortunately um, so he them two are leaving with Tony Martin from London area right. and then we got John got a call from Tony Martin saying he didn't want to do it and he wasn't getting on the plane Dang. So, wow. So this is like a day before, you know? So, man. So John called me and I said, wow, let's call Bob Rock immediately because this was the first record Bob Rock was doing as a producer. Mm-hmm. You know, even though he engineered Aerosmith and Bon Jovi and all that, this was his big production debut. Yeah. yeah. So we called Bob and said, what should we do? We already sent the drums up and stuff. He said, well, just come anyway. We'll find the singer. Right. You know, as long as you, you, John, and Tony come with Nick Green, the keyboard player, we'll find the singer. Okay, so we went. Did uh, Well, did Tony Martin ha- give you much of a reason why you didn't want to do it, why you backed out the last minute? Not much of a reason, because I don't even remember why he backed out. Yeah. And I would, re- I would remember, you know, if it was like a reason I had some merit, but I don't know why he backed out. If you ever talk to him, you could ask him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I'd like to know. Okay. Yeah. You know? So anyway, so we were up there and and we started recording and uh, we were working with Bob Rock and we did everything to a click. And with that, um, as we kept recording with the drum sound we were doing, kept getting better and better. Mm-hmm. So finally, after about 10 songs recorded, I said to Bob, why don't we go back and let's re-record the drums, you know, to Tony and, and, and John and a click because the drum sound is so much better now. Yeah. So he agreed. So I went in and recut all the songs again. 
And, uh, and then um, I remember going through each song and saying, I already did that fill in another song. Let's replace that fill. And I would do it again, do something else. And then the, one of the last songs we did was Jelly Roll. Right, and we went to, you know, and uh, Vancouver was known for its strip bars yeah. at the time. You know, they used to have these showers and showers on stage, and the chicks would take showers, and you know, so we would go to the strip bars a lot. And just one night, we all got really drunk and smoking pot and smoked and high and everything else. And we took a whole bunch of people back to the studio including like, uh, I think it was Mike Frazier, our engineer. Yeah. He came back and we started playing music for people. And then, you know, Jelly Roll had no drums yet. So Sykes said, hey, Carm, go. Go ahead and put the drums on. I said, nah, I don't put the drums on. I'm too freaking hard. <laughs> you know, I said, I'm ready to party. I'm not ready to go work and put drums on. So come on, Carm. And everybody go, like, yeah, go do it. You know, blah, blah, blah. So I went and did it. I went and did it. I did like one take. And then the next day we'd go back in and we listened to it. And it was great. <laughs> I said, wow. I can't believe I played that good and I was so fucked up. You know? She said, trust in me, my darling, for together we are strong. She said, you are all I live for, I would never do you wrong. She done fooling with my head, she take possession of my heart. Now I'm standing all alone. And that's the take that that's the take that went on uh, Jelly. Roll. That's awesome. Now every time I hear that song, I'm going to think of that. Whoa, Carmine's messed up. So now we had the song, all the stuff done, and then you know we still had no singer. So we went back to L.A. and at that point, John liked the area in, and he had bought a house like a few blocks away from me in Northridge. So you know, I house every day, and we. And then Tony was staying with John, and we would audition singers. I mean, we did everybody. We did Holmes, David Glenn Isley. Um, I can't even remember it, all the guys. We even did Mark, Mark Free from King Cobra. Mm-hmm. We did all these different guys. And none of them really shined with the material. So me and Tony said to John, look, dude, you did the demos that got the deal. You sang them. Why don't you just sing? We'll be a trio. Right. You know, we'll be a trio with depth. We used to call Nick Green, the keyboard player, the depth. Yeah. Because <laughs> he'd add the synthesizers to the to the music and it would add the depth to the trio. You know? So after working on John a little bit, we persuaded him to do it. So we went in and did a few of the songs. And we did Valley of the Kings and uh and I don't know what other ones we did. And then we presented it to John John Collot, and we said, "Look, let's just let John sing, you know, because mm-hmm. you know he did the demos and he sounds a good singer." So John agreed. Yeah. So there we are. So now we we have our singer. Right. So now we can finish the album, but we had to wait because Bob Rock started doing the Cult, right? That big Cult album that right. came out. Yeah. So we had to wait. We had to wait. We had to wait, and. Finally, when we finished waiting, we all went back up there again. And I think I had left my drums up there in case we wanted to redo anything. Uh, but we recorded everything analog, you know, and we had cassettes of the analog recording. 
if you think the album sounds good, what you heard, what you heard, the analog is even better. Oh wow! Because the analog is analog, you know, it just sounds amazing. So we finished everything finally, and then we were getting in to mix it. And Bob Rock came to LA to mix. We mixed in Glendale. I forgot the studio, and he said, "Well, I'm going to bounce everything to digital from the analog. We're going to mix it on digital." And me and Sykes are like saying, oh, man, we don't want digital. You know, Tony went back to England, I think. And we don't want digital. We want to keep it analog. So we made a plan to go in and tell Bob, we want it analog. We don't want it digital. And Bob turned around and said, look, it's either digital or we don't mix it. Oh, geez. So John looked at me and I looked at him and said, Okay. <laughs> and we, we walked out with our tails between our legs. You know? <laughs> but that was good. So then we got it all done and you know, it sounded fantastic. Bob did a great job mixing it with Mike Frazier. Yeah. My drum sound was great. Yes. Guitar sounds were great. Yes. Bass sounds were awesome. John's voice sounded great. Mm -hmm. We did backgrounds, me and Tony and John, you know, we came out and Nick did his great keyboard parts. And you know, so we had a finished album. So then the next thing was a video. So we we hired uh, Mary, uh, she did Pet Cemetery. I forgot her last name. She directed Pet Cemetery, the movies. Oh, wow. Uh, anyway, so she did the video and it was Valley of the Kings. Right. So. Mary Lambert. Mary Lambert, there you go. Yeah. So she did the video and, and they did it with Valley of the Kings. It was all about Egyptian you know, lyrics. And so they made this whole Egyptian video cost $150,000. Wow. You know, I mean, if you look at it, you see it, you know, we, we were in an old, I don't know what it was, like an old fort in Long Beach made of cement. And they had all, they brought in all this stuff. They brought in actors, to, you know, like uh, acting like the uh, Moses and the Egyptians and yeah. you know, pulling, pulling giant pieces of stone and all. It was an amazing video. Yeah, that's so. crazy. We had the team, we had everything. We had the agency, we had the record company, we had Bob Rock, the producer, we had uh, Kalagner, we had everything. We had the PR from Geffen Records, and we had this management team. But the problem with the management team was they didn't have control of the band. Right. You know, like there was no real plan on it other than we did the video okay re let's release the video and then we're lining up a tour with uh bon jovi mm -hmm. right we had a summer tour with bon jovi did about two weeks of dates with bon jovi when the album first came out and everything was great yeah except 
the managers wouldn't do their job, so John fired them. Mm. So we had the album out, we had the video on MTV, right? Yeah. It was in it wasn't in heavy rotation. And and John fired the, the management because they weren't doing the right thing, they weren't doing anything. Wow. So so I had my manager, you know, my personal manager, Alan Miller, who Miller, who worked with KISS in the oh, yeah. management, you know. And he was my manager, so he was advising me to tell John to tell the record company what to do, you know, and that was going on. And John still had a stepdad in there, so it was a bit of a mess, you know. Right. And then we, and then we decided as a band that we spent so much money on this video, we wanted this video to be in heavy rotation, right? Yeah. Because right. we spent so much money on it, but. But Geffen didn't want that. They wanted this video to be the introduction to Blue Murder. And they wanted to put all the big push behind Jelly Roll. Because mm-hmm. that was more of a single. Right. Okay. Right. But we didn't care. <laughs> you know? And that's why I say we had no managers. And then finally, we did release Jelly Roll. And, and before that, they put all the push behind uh, um, Valley of the Kings. Valley of the Kings did okay. But it wasn't the kind of song that was going to break on rock radio, that you know, top 40 rock radio, you know? Right. So they released Jelly Roll, and then we got a new manager. We got this manager who uh, managed Brian Adams. Bruce Allen was his name. Mm-hmm. But then he started treating the band more like John Sykes uh, than uh. the band, you know? And, uh, and, and then he booked a tour with Billy Squire mm-hmm. and, and King's X. Right, so King's X opened Blue Murder and Billy Squire. Wow. Then yeah. that was the time when Billy Squire released that that video that he looked really gay. <laughs> the Rock Me Tonight video. Yeah, and that <laughs> and the whole industry turned on Billy Squire overnight. Yeah. Overnight. <laughs> yeah. So that tour we did was like really mediocre. You know, the, wow. The promoters weren't promoting it right, and the buildings we were playing in were half full. You know, and the funny thing happened on that tour. I, I loved King's X. Yeah, you know, I'm yeah. the type of guy when we're on the road, I, I I go and I hang out with people. You know, so I I, I found it. That's that's King's X bus. So I walk on the King's X bus, and what do I hear playing on their bus? Cactus. Oh, cool. Nice. <laughs> I said, wow. I said, did you know I was coming in? They said, no, man. We love Cactus. You know, <laughs> Cactus is one of our favorite bands. We we play Cactus all the time. I said, wow. I said, that's cool. So we became really good friends. Oh, I bet. <laughs> you know, and, you know, I love the guy. I love them as a band. They were awesome. Oh, they are awesome. Love the King's X. Great know? people, and, too. And great yeah. people. And, you know, Doug played on my guitar, Zeus. So did Ty. Doug sang a song on my guitar, Zeus, you know. And when I did the guitar, Zeus, I had, I had Ted Nugent and Brian May and King's X lined up. I figured, you know, people love Brian May. We'll, we'll, that will... Those, these three acts were a drawing card for other guitarists to come on my album. You know, mm-hmm. so who do you got? I got Brian May, got Ted Nugent, and all the musicians loved King's X. Oh, yeah. And I got oh, yeah. King's X, and that said, oh, I would like to do it too, says Slash. Right. Says Ingve, <laughs> says, you know, so that's how I, I used them as drawing cards. Nice. And then it went on and on and on, uh, the tour and the tour got worse and worse. We played in New York at Studio 54 with Billy Squire and Blue Murder, you know, because I'm from New York. We had a big following in, in there and we kept blowing Billy off in a lot of 
a lot of shows, you know. Bet, and yeah. and then that tour ended, and then just as that tour ended, it was like you know '89 going into '90, and the album didn't do anything. It went up oh. to like number fifty on the charts, you know. And back in those days, number fifty was like two hundred thousand records. Yeah. Which today that would be huge. Man, yeah, that'd be massive <laughs> today. You know, but two hundred thousand records back then got the number fifty. I mean, on my solo record in '82, I did 110,000. I was number 98. Yeah. <laughs> right. Much <clears throat> different time. 200,000 didn't do anything, so it kind of bummed everybody out. Really bummed John out because this yeah. was his baby. Yeah. Right. You know, after White Snake, you know, after he got canned from White Snake, and this was like the way to get back at White Snake from John, you know. Sure. And it didn't. And it didn't happen because he wrote. He wrote all the songs. I mean, all these songs. Should have been the next White Snake record. Oh, for yeah. sure. Yeah. You know, and uh, but so so he got a little depressed and and you know I wasn't on any salary or nothing. You know, I I I did it totally for the fee of working on the album, and then for when we went out on the road, you know, we got paid. Right. But Tony was on a salary, you know, small salary, but I wasn't because you know, I I had money. You know, I wasn't like broke. And I had my own house, I had cars, I had investments and stuff, real estate. And, you know, so I, I was like, you know, I was bummed. That's yeah, what I was. Because you were yeah. doing it for the love of it. As I said, I, yeah, I would have, I would have done it. I would have, I would have bet my house, you know, that this thing wasn't going to be huge, you know. But anyway, so then some other projects came up for me, like a Vanilla Fudge live album came up and I was working on that and, and John would, I guess was upset that I was doing that because I was supposed to be in Blue Murder. And then things got weird and then came out, mm-hmm. you know, and grunge came out and started coming out and hitting. And so we kind of out of, I was out of Blue Murder, you know, do yeah. butt heads on a few things. I don't even remember what happened, but I was out of Blue Murder and, and he still had another album to do. Right. And it, about a year later, he started doing an album with another drummer, and Mike Stone was producing. And then Mike called me and said, "Look, I want you to come back and play do the record. You should do it as and you know. I know you're not in the band anymore. But we can do it as sessions." So I said, "Okay." So I went in and did the album for I don't know what scale. I got maybe double scale or some crap, you know. But there was 12 songs on the record, and I did 10 of them. And Tony was in too. Yeah. You know, so. So it was still Blue Murder, mm. you know, and the record was good. It is a good, really album. good record, a really good record, number two. And then um, Grunge hit heavy, yeah, and nothing happened with that record. Yeah, because right. Blue Murder is about as far away from Grunge as you can get. Yep, yep. So, so nothing happened. Yeah, and and then John started doing Thin Lizzy, right? You know, and. Uh, and it was 91, 90, 91, I started doing Edgar Winter, you know, and I started doing that band, which uh, we're thinking of Blue Murder was good because we had all these named guys. I got Bob Daisley, Jeff Watson, Joel and Turner and put together this Mother's Army band yeah. that did really well in, in Japan, you know, that deals out of Japan. And then while that was going on, I came up with this concept to do this catharsis and then... Uh, when I got the deal out of Japan, and like I said, I had all these guys on it. I got 
Kelly Keeling, who was on the second Blue Murder album, and he sang that song, I'm on Fire, which is a great song. And he, he helped write songs, I think, I don't know if she got the credit for it. Uh, and then I had, got Tony Franklin. I said, dude, I want this album to be like Blue Murder meets Soundgarden meets the Beatles. Right. That was the concept of the music with Kelly. And that's what we got. And then, you know, so then I continued that. And then, I don't know, it was 2000, you know, and then me, John, and Tony have been friends all through. At the time of Blue Murder, Tony was a blatant drug addict, alcoholic, you know, headed for an overdose. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But in 1990, he got religious. He started doing, getting like Middle Eastern kind of religion, meditating, all that totally straightened himself out. Ended up a couple of years later, 92, 93, got married. And a wife that I knew from King Cobra days, you know, from uh, Johnny Rod's wife's friend, mm-hmm. you know, and she's a wonderful lady. They've been together ever since they have a kid, you know, a 16 year old, 18 year old daughter. And they live around in the same area as my brother lives, my brother Vinny lives. And I'm always in right touch on. with him. I'm always in touch with Tony. We went to Japan while John Sykes was doing, he, he tried to do Blue Murder in Japan and the fans wouldn't have it without yeah. with Tony. You know? So he's, his future albums were just called Sykes. Yeah. And he had this guy Tommy on on drums and Marco Mendoza yeah. and Thin Lizzy on bass. You know, And then he was doing Thin Lizzy as well. Right. You know, and me and Tony were doing a group called Pearl in Japan that was probably as big or bigger than Sykes, you know, in Japan. And uh, and that album, the second album actually went platinum in Japan. Right. I was going to say, because as as in the United States, it didn't get that much shine. It definitely didn't get the shine it should have. But in Japan, you guys were pretty damn big. We were when we first went to Japan. It's really funny because. There was Burn Magazine. They did an article on the legendary trios in rock in rock yeah. up to 1989. So they had Jimi Hendrix, The Cream, yeah. BBA, yeah. and Blue Murder. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I said this is fun. I said this is great. I'm in two of them. You're in two of them, right? right. You know? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I was you know I was really big in Japan. You know, all through my career, I always had a big following in Japan. Then John had a big following from from Whitesnake, and Tony had a big following from The Firm. Yeah. So when you put all of us together and you got Blue Murder, we did 12,000 people in Tokyo, the wow. first trip, you know, in different venues. I think there's a video yeah. of that on YouTube. That's how I was... Yeah, it's a, it's a bootleg. Yeah, it's, it's pretty wild, you know, how huge that crowd is. And you guys are on fire. We were on fire. Yeah. And I had my, my King Cobra lighting guy and roadie... And uh, he put the light show together and, and, you know, we had good lights from the beginning. I mean, we took out five roadies when we first opened up for Bon Jovi and Billy Squire. We had a crew of five people. We had two buses. I mean, you know, we were traveling like a headliner, you know, right. you know? so that's wild. So that's really the story. And then we tried to put it together again, I don't know, 2012 or 15 or me and Tony jam with John. We've been friends, and then it just didn't work out. You know, John wanted a certain billing, and 
I didn't agree with it and Tony didn't agree with it. And then right. and Tony was going to do something with him and then nothing happened. And he quit in Lizzie in 2011 yeah. to do Blue Murder. And we actually had gigs booked in Europe and stuff. And then stuff, we had a manager that was managing Thin Lizzie at the time. And, uh, and something happened between him and John and everything got blown out and it was, ne- and it was never got picked up again. I tried to bring some managers in with John and everything. And it just never worked out. And it's a oh, shame because the shame. band is amazing. And now wow. it can never work out anymore because I personally, for health reasons, won't go to Japan or Europe anymore because I had a, a near-death experience when I went there last time in 2018 with my, with my brother. Oh, wow. I almost didn't make it home alive. So, wow. What happened? So I had these massive nosebleeds, huh. you know, and uh, it's a condition that is ongoing. And I oh, never know when it's going to happen again. Yeah. So, so I'm only making, I'm only doing gigs in America. Yeah. Oh, wow. That sounds scary. Yeah. And then after wow. that, I had surgery and stuff. And in 2018, I toured with the Rascals, mm-hmm. you know, and I didn't go out of the country. Yeah. You know? Now you got to take yeah. care of yourself. Right. Yeah, for That's sure. Crazy. Yeah. So, so now anything I do is in America. <clears throat> and it's like, Vanilla Fudge goes to Europe. We have a replacement that I, I use for him. If Cactus goes, you know, I can ask my brother Vinny to go in my yeah. place, you know. Right. So, but it's a Blue Murder reunion got as close as actually having dates on the books. We almost got there. We almost did. Man. We did wow. have dates on the book now, back in 2012, 13, right after he left in Lizzie. We had the same manager and he. You know, he used the, the strength of John playing with and Lizzie and the strength of Blue Murder. We actually were going to be, this is funny. Then Lizzie kept changing ups. So John persuaded uh, Scott Gorham to bring me and Tony into Thin Lizzie. Wow. Right? So it was Blue Murder inside Thin Lizzie. And that <laughs> didn't work out. Because we were so good together, the three of us, that um, Scott Gorham canceled the whole tour and canceled everything. Yeah. Wow. After we rehearsed for two weeks. Wow. Yeah. That would I mean, it was something, man. It was powerful. You yeah. know, when Scott would walk out of the room, you know, and like, go take a break, meet John and Tony, stop playing Blue Murder songs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he walks in, he's like, yeah. damn it, this isn't murder, Lizzie. Yeah. And, Quit it. Exactly. <laughs> and then we'd stop and then we'd get back into Tin Lizzie. But when like like a solo would come together, like it like when Scott had to play a solo, he had the three of us behind him. It was it was overbearingly powerful. Oh man, I wish I could you know, have heard that. Yeah. It was hard it was hard for him to uh I think it was hard for him to deal with that. It's the power of the three of us together. Because you know, you have certain people that play together, you get a magic. We had the magic from the first day I walked in that studio. In England, right then, there was a magic was being created. You know, Vanilla Fudge had a magic. BBA had a magic, you know. When you get certain people together, it creates a magic that that spills out and gets success. Yeah, you know? the kind of magic you can feel through your speakers when you're listening to the album, even, even all these years later. Yeah, yeah, you can't make that magic up. And it is a shame. You know? It is a shame that you guys couldn't get it back together because I think now the album is way more revered 
and respected than it was even when it was new because now there's a whole new generation of people that are discovering this album for the first yeah. time and the second album and the second too. album yeah. i love the second album the song the songs on the second album were awesome yes. yeah both of them love it was awesome man that was a great yeah. song and what was that one uh it was about the, the runaway child it was a runaway child and all she needs is love it was like a Heavy duty, uh, blue murder meets the police. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like that kind of song. It was awesome, man. Tony played so great on the record. That's why I, I had to do. I had to bring Tony in to do Katarzys. You know, I don't know if you guys heard Katarzys. Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. I mean, great it sounds song. like blue murder in a lot of parts. Mm-hmm. You know, and Kelly Keeling. You know, he played all. These, he, we wrote the songs, and it was very blue murderish. With the Soundgarden tuning, with Beatle harmonies, you know, and and I mean it was a great record, even if we didn't have all those guitar players on it. Right, right. You know, I considered it as good as as you know the Blue Murder records. You know, and the production was great. We did the analog, and I love those records. I mean, I, I put it right up to neck and neck. Yeah, yeah. Kelly sang his butt off, and you know, and had all these great players on, and and Tony just plays. Tremendous on there. Tony's an amazingly yeah. underrated bass player, man. So good. Oh, and man. you talk about how tight you guys were, how well you gelled. There's uh, on also on YouTube. There's footage of you guys doing a TV show, and oh yeah, yeah, and, yeah, man. It's amazing to watch you guys on stage together because it's almost like watching a three-headed monster kick out this rock, man. It's great. That was the Weird Al show. Yeah. Actually, we have Weird Al on a on a hanging and banging show in oh, two nice. weeks with Rick oh, Derringer. Cool. Rick Derringer produced the first six albums of his. Yeah, so that's that's right. Fun. Yeah, but you know what the secret of that show is? The tracks were pre-recorded. Yeah. yeah. Oh, really? It looks like it's totally live. I'm surprised. <laughs> you yeah. can't even tell. You guys did We so recorded good. them at John's studio in his house that he had at the time. Mm-hmm. And, and we learned exactly what we played. Wow. Wow. Because <laughs> we knew it was going to be on MTV and we want to kick ass. The only thing wasn't that the vocals were live. Okay. Wow. In Jelly Roll, yeah. we did all those vocals live and yeah, uh, we had me. the little drum set and all that stuff. Yeah. But we fooled everybody. We fooled everybody on that one. Yeah, I remember watch. Totally. I was watching it the other day, and I was like, "This has to be the smallest drum kit that Carmine has ever played." Yes, it was like a cocktail kit when you play it. You're known for the big kit. Yeah. But the end of Billy was always my favorite ending. It was my idea to do it. I said, "You know, we we you go bam bam to bam 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 and bam to bam bop." Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, then yeah, it was like. One bar, then two bars, then four bars, and then finally it ended, you know? And we do a freeze, you know? Yeah, and then the crowd's like, yeah. Wait. And the crowd, yeah, when no? we did that live, no. the crowd used to go bananas. <laughs> and you know what was really interesting? You know, we when we played live, we, we had this 70s thing of jamming going on. Yeah. You know, we didn't play like, like most 80s bands played. The solos were exactly like the record. Yeah. We weren't like that. We were jamming in those solos. Right. right. And when we played with Bon Jovi, you know, Bon Jovi had, you know, we were doing arenas. We did, I don't know how many shows, six, seven, eight, nine shows with him. And there were a lot of females. But the females 
were getting off on the jamming part, which <laughs> we thought was going to be a problem on that with that audience. Yeah. But when we finished, like a jam came back and so on, everyone started cheering. You know, <laughs> it was an amazing. We got an amazing reaction on that on that tour. And had we had more gigs like that, and we had more action with the with the album, we would have been on bigger tours, and that's what propelled the album to become big. Yeah, right. But we yeah. didn't have the management strength behind us to pull that together. You know, I think I think that's it. I think that's why it didn't happen. John thinks that it was uh, Geffen did it to, just to release the record. You know that 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 uh, David Coverdale told them. To, to make the record not happen, oh. the first, mm. they're still enemies. Yeah, those wow. two, they're Brilliant. still enemies because John got fired. They're still enemies, you know. And in fact, John, th I said, "Come on, dude, they're not going to spend that kind of money, you know, a huge record deal that went two hundred grand over budget, you know, and paid tour support and paid all those monies for a video. Yeah. I mean, must have been debt for them for a million and a half dollars." You know, they're not going to put all that money out and then just not do anything with it because David Coverdale want, wanted to get back at you, John Sykes. I said, I think it's because we didn't have management. I said, I think we didn't have management. You know, who knows? I mean, I'll probably see this interview on on uh, on Blabbermouth, you know, and they'll say, come out if he says. It's like like now we've had people on, uh, on our show. Yeah. We just had... Uh, Tommy Theron, and we were talking about that. He just discovered he had Kiss. It's been on Blabbermouth and uh, Ultimate Classic Rock and all that. And the headline that he discovered his his daughter, you know, on our show. Uh, yeah. Because you know? yeah. I could see this show, right? You, you put it out, and then be a headline. Carmine says it was it was uh, <laughs> not David Geffen, not <laughs> you know, you know what I'm saying? Right, because yeah. it would make more sense. Like if David Coverdale wanted to put a stop to it, then the record company would have cut it off at the knees before it ever had they a chance. They wouldn't have gave him a deal. They wouldn't have gave him yeah. a deal. I would think they wouldn't have given him a deal. Why would they give him a deal? Or maybe they didn't know that they were so mad at each other that David wanted to cut off, and it was after the fact and signed contracts and stuff, but. You know, I, I truly believe we didn't have the management. Yeah. Because in those days, you needed everything. You needed the record company. You needed the, the head, big A&R guy like Kalabner, right. big producer like Bob Rupp. We had big agency. We had big promotion, you know, from from not only um, Geffen, but we had, I think we had an outside promotion company, you know, a, a radio promotion guy. We had everything except a management. Wow. No management, you know. If we would have had like, you know, one of the big managers handling it, and not John's father-in-law and some two other guys, you know, I think we would have happened. Yeah, I got to believe, know? you know, if that's all it could be. So, so important. It's so important yeah. because you know management has to control the band. You know, like man, if we had a strong management, they would say, hey, look. The plan is Valley of the Kings is the first single. We're going to work it up to a certain point, and then we're going to hit with Jelly Roll, the second single, you know, when we got the following starting to build, yeah. you know? Right. But, you know, there was nobody to control the band, you know? Hmm. Yeah. There was no management. I mean, we had nobody out there 
we're lining up. I mean, my manager helped line up the interviews and keep them in order to me because we had no management. <laughs> it was like second week of the record being out. Right. Or maybe even the first week. It, it was so ridiculous. I mean, I, I remember telling my manager, I said, this is unbelievable. We got this unbelievable album, great group, everything in place. And, and we have no management here. We are, me and you were helping manage it with John and his stepdad. I said, this is crazy, you know? And then we're, by the time we finally got that guy, Bruce Allen, it was almost too late, yeah, you know? Right. And then when we got him, he just kept pushing John, you know? Yeah. Okay. You know, John was a singer, the guitar player, White Snake, 27 million albums, but you know, we were a band. We were the trio. We were like the band, you know. Yeah, you know, you guys played Billy on that Weird Al show. I was, I wondered, was that song in contention to be a single, since you played it on TV? No, it wasn't. Not that I remember. We just liked playing it. We just liked playing it because it was just such a great playing song. And you know, the solo in the middle was a bit extended. Yeah. You know, that's what we used to do, you know. And uh, that was one of our favorite songs to play live. Your symbol work on that song, especially on, on the solo on that song. Yeah, you know, all the China stuff. Yeah, I and, love and, that. and then, you know, two, three years after that, a few years after that, rotator cuff surgery on this one. I was playing uh, with Michael Schenker. I was playing a gig, and I have two Chinas up here, you know? You uh, can't see it. I'm out of focus there. Two Chinas way up, and I, I went like that with my left hand way up high on that China. And I was having a problem with my left shoulder. And when I went and hit it, I said, whoa, I had a pain that went from my shoulder down, all the way down to my hands, fingertips. I brought my arm down and I couldn't move it. It was stuck there. Dang. <clears throat> I'm trying to get Schenker attention, his attention to say, hey, dude, I can't do my solo tonight. My arm's fucked up. Right. And you, you've seen Schenker play. He's always like, yeah. You know, Hunched never over. looks this way, this way, yeah. up there. He's always like this. I couldn't get his attention. Oh, I did God. probably the worst drum solo in my career that night. Oh, man. And then, then I had to get rotator cuff surgery. But I had a Carmine um, solo tour booked right after that in Europe. I had 20 shows with really good paying money and everything. I couldn't just throw it out. Yeah. So I went to a, the doctor who uh, injected me with cortisone in my shoulder. And I made it through all 20 shows. Right after that, 2010, I, I did surgery. Wow. 2012, I did the other one. Now, if you notice, my symbols are down here. <laughs> yeah. Don't want to know I, I took down anymore. the left one totally. <laughs> and even I love the way it looked when you oh, yeah, played off it, man. It looked, looked so cool for the show, my show, you know. Right. Drum show, spinning sticks and hit sticks off it. I had oh, so many great routines with those and now. You know, they're down low. I can't, I don't look yeah. as animal right. now, you know. 
Yeah, but you don't want to screw your shoulder. I mean, uh, not probably his animal either. I mean, come on, that was like 89. How old was I in 89? That's a lot younger than I am now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Can I ask you a couple things about Jelly Roll? Um, Have you ever heard that uh, – I'm sure you've heard of the band Eclipse from Sweden, haven't you? Yes. So do you know they do kind of an homage to, to Jelly Roll in the beginning of one of their songs called Breakdown? didn't know that yeah the very beginning of it is almost a, a note for note copy on the the little acoustic intro oh, really? okay. and I, I and i read eric the uh, singer in an interview he's like it wasn't a ripoff it's us paying tribute to that song because he loved that song well, so yeah much. that's what that's what uh who was it was saying, oh spirit was saying about uh well yeah uh, about stairway or stairway to heaven yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean that was ridiculous those yeah. chords of stairway to heaven are just a stock descending chord pattern yeah right they're in so many songs i mean we'd have that chord pattern in ellen the rigby and vanilla fudge in 1967 before stairway heaven right came out they're just a descending chord pattern and then you know 40 years later (laughs) that was totally stupid but on on jelly roll like you know that it it I was going to ask you, was that song written with two pieces of songs together? Because it starts off so up-tempo, and then it just turns into this ballad at the end of the song. It's almost like two songs put well, together. Well, that was the idea. Yeah. It, was, it okay. wasn't written as two songs. It was written as one song. Okay. And when we were arranging it, you know, Sykes said, well, we got to get into the, into the ballad part. And I said, well, you know, I can do this really long drum fill that'll really build, you know, build into that. That's what we did. I, I did a drunk, you know, in stone. And I couldn't believe it when I heard it the next day. I said, wow, this sounds great. And and I love where it picked up, where Tony and me come in. It was like real Zeppelin, yeah. you know? Oh, yeah. Where it's yeah. a boom, 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 just straight ahead, you know, with the yeah. acoustic guitar and the vocals. She said, and then ended on it. She said, really cool, you know? Yeah. I hear a lot of Zeppelin influence on, on several songs on this record. Yeah, I mean, come on. I mean, I was around before Zeppelin, yeah. you know, I, I played the way I played that John Bottom listened to me, mm-hmm. Cozy listened to me, you know, and, and I'm not saying that that's, that's, uh, uh the book Thunder of Drums mm-hmm. by Chris Wells. He wrote a book about John Bottom and, and because he did interviews with him when they came back, when he came back from working with Vanilla Fudge, you know, you know, Vanilla Fudge had opened their first opening show. Zeppelin was with us. Wow. Oh, okay. Did you know no, that? I did not know I did that. Not know that. Okay. I want to know something yeah. else. We paid half their fee. Oh, really? Because <laughs> it, it was funny enough. The, the act was Spirit and Vanilla Fudge. We sold out in Denver, Colorado. Barry Fader promoter. It was like seventy five hundred people sold out. Our agent was Zeppelin's agent. Uh, our lawyer was Zeppelin's lawyer. And when they first came out, they wanted them to tour with us. So on the very first tour, the very first gig, December 26, 1968, 
Zeppelin was offered to Barry Faye to open the show. Mm-hmm. And Barry Faye said, we don't need him. We're sold out. Right. So our agent said, yeah, but we, this is Jimmy Page's band. We want to get him going, you know. Fudge agreed to have him open for them, blah, blah, blah. It's only $1,500. Come on, Barry, you sold out. Right. He says, I don't want him. So my agent says, okay, I'll tell you what. You pay 750 bucks, and Vanilla Fudge will pay the other 750 How's that? And just let yeah. them open. They'll do 30 minutes. So he said, okay. <laughs> wow. That's wild. So they opened for us. Wow. So when John Bonham saw my big monster drum set, right. he had this little Ludra kit. You know, we became friends. I always, I was always the kind of guy where where I helped the un, the underdogs. Yeah. At the yeah. time, you know, like I go hang out with the roadies and like like I went and hung out with King's X. Right. You know. Yeah. I mean, that's just what I do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm a friendly guy. I like, I love musicians. I like especially, you know. And I heard Zeppelin's first album before mm-hmm. this. And I heard John Bonham's foot on Good Times, Bad Times. I was like blown away. I said, yeah. this kid, had, you know, he was younger than me. I said, this kid is really freaking good. Nice. Yeah. You know, so yeah, let's take him on tour. So so we did a few gigs with them, like in that time period. And uh, then their album came out. And so John asked me if I can call Ludwig mm-hmm. and get a drum set like mine. Because when I was talking to him, I said, dude, I freaking love that foot on Good Times, Bad Times. And he said, I got it from you. I said, get out of here. I don't do that. <laughs> and he pointed out somewhere on an album, because, you know, when, still today, when I record records, I just play what I feel. Right. I don't play like, well, this is the verse. Here's the pre-chorus. You know, I never did that. And he pointed out on one of my records with Vanilla Fudge, where I did it. I didn't go like jibba boom dip boom boom dip boom 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 boom. I went bam 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 like that with the snare drums, and he took it and just extended it bam 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 like that, you know. So when he pointed it out, I went and listened. I said, "My God, I did do that," but you know, drummers are always like, "Is a great drummer called Joe Morello from Jazz Guy from Dave Brubeck Quartet." He said, look, nobody has it all. We all steal from each other. Yeah. That's right. correct. You know, we all steal from each other and make it our own. So he took that, made it his own. And then I took it back and yeah. I did what he did, you know. But I didn't know he got it from me until I talked to him. Right. Wow. So so we became good friends. So I called Ludwig up and this is the conversation of, of the decades. Right? I called him up and say, hey, listen, there's this guy named John Bonham. He plays in a group called New Group Led Zeppelin. He wants to get it. He wants to get an endorsement. He wants a, a kit just like mine, twenty-six bass drums, the big toms, all that stuff. Because my that kit was the first kit that was made by Ludwig that was oversized, and the first kit in rock that was oversized like that. So, I think these guys are going to be big. I said to him, <laughs> like the understatement of six decades, right? You know, <laughs> you know? and. So then we became friends and we went out on tour. Six months later, we went out on tour again. Now it was equal bill. The first album was so big that they did a second album already. Now he used my big drums. Yeah. Wow. You know? So we, we had a similar drum sound on my near the beginning record and his second uh, Zeppelin record because they were both 26 bass drums. And he even used two bass drums on his first tour, second tour. 
you know. And yeah. I often think, often thought, what the what the uh, audience used to think when either we we did alternate buildings. So sometimes we went on first, sometimes they went on first. And and all these stories are in my book, by the way. You know. Yeah. And you put the drums up, and they play, then they take the drums off, and then they put my kit up, which is the same kit. <laughs> you know? so I often talk the audience and. Hey Fred, why did they take the drums yeah. off and put them back on again? You know, yeah. neither one back? of us had names on the drums in those wow. days. Right, you know, it looked exactly the same. That's but funny. then we became good friends, and so, so, so. Long story short, or short story long. So I play <laughs> a lot like John because he played a lot like me. That's great. You know? So well, that's why when yeah. I play like with Zeppelin, I play guitar-heavy music. Mm. I play like that because that's what I do. You know. But, but yeah, to, to wrap it up with uh, the Blue Murder thing, I wanted to say like the, the, the two favorite drum sounds I have from 80s rock albums, A, Blue Murder, because your drums on this are just yeah. phenomenal and huge. And the other one is yeah. Kisses Creatures of the Night with Eric Carr's drum track on there. Those are my two. I love albums where the drums are just so which overpowering. One, which is the second one? Eric uh, Creatures, Creatures of the Night, Eric Carr from Eric Kiss. Carr, yeah. Who yeah. produced that? Do you remember? Uh, Michael James Jackson. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. Poor Eric, they, man. He was, he was a sweet But a nice guy, man. A nice yeah. guy. And I remember the last time I saw him, he was looking so bad. You know, it was at, it was at, I think it was, it was, it was a big concert in the LA Forum. I don't, I don't think it was Kiss. And he, he came and he was backstage and just didn't look good, huh? Didn't look good. And, uh, same with Randy Castile. Same, yeah. Same Another thing. amazing drummer, too. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, these, but yeah, I got. I just want to thank you for making this record because I, I I loved it when it was brand new, and I used to turn all of my friends onto this record when it came out, and it's yeah. just it's one of my favorite records of all time. I was I was very proud, and still am very proud of that record, and the fact that uh, you know we did that record, and the whole thing was an experiment with everybody, with John singing, the three of us together, with Bob Rock producing. You know, it was a lot of firsts on that yeah. record you know that worked out fantastic and the only thing that failed was the was the sales yeah creatively it was an amazing record yeah and, and we we interviewed mike fraser a few uh, months ago and, and oh, he had real, really great memories of making this record yeah yeah, yeah. that was yeah. it and he did the second record too that's right yeah yeah but With uh, mike stone producing right that's right cool well thanks for doing okay, the that was today. fun yeah carmine this was great man Pleasure, pleasure talking to you. You know, huge fan of your stuff. All, all yeah, you can through the promote, years. give a little, little little shout out for my book. Uh, Stick it, my life of sex, drums, and rock and roll. All these stories are in it. Nice. Yeah, I'm definitely gonna pick that up. Yeah. yeah so, and Appreciate it's sex rated. It gets really fucking crazy. Oh, cool. That, <laughs> I can imagine. Kind of <laughs> I mean, when, when I play, when I, you know, when I, I wrote it with the guy that wrote Nikki Six's book. Yeah. Oh, okay. Ian, Ian Giddens, and, and I said, dude, didn't you show us? Not too much sex and shit in here. You know, we call sex drums and rock and roll. I said, but he said, no, man. He said, believe me, all these middle-aged women are going to buy it. They can love this shit. So when we do gigs, right, we'd be selling merch. And so, like a woman comes up, she's like 40, 45, 50 years old. I go, listen, this is really X-rated. And she goes, good. <laughs> Most of them go, good. I can't wait to read it. You know? I said, well, I hope you don't have a bad opinion of me after you're yeah. done of course not <laughs> put put a towel down before you start reading yeah exactly <laughs>
If you did that stuff today that was in that book, you'd be arrested. Oh, yeah. yeah. Canceled yeah. immediately. Yeah, yeah totally. Well, a much so. simpler time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. A lot more fun. Yeah. All right, dude. Awesome. Thank you Good so to much. Talk to you guys. Right, Great ciao. to talk to you. See All right. you soon. Bye. Yeah, Thank bye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.